This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello, everyone. We made it to episode six of season four. I'm your host of the How We Got Here podcast, Rachel DePompa. If you love our little venture, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends to listen. We do have an Instagram account, How We Got Here VA. Follow us. Also, check out Richmond Family Magazine and Just Jones column. She just wrote about the podcast. I want to send her a big thanks. And we really do appreciate all of your support to keep us going. We really want to bring you a season five. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of November 9th through the 15th. Sometimes on How We Got Here, a moment in history we decide to feature becomes more relevant than we ever could have imagined. Thus is the case with the Virginia Military Institute. This week, on November 11th, back in 1839, VMI became the nation's first state-supported military school. But as you are likely aware, VMI is now in the headlines across our nation. Its superintendent recently resigned after Virginia's governor ordered an independent probe into possible systemic racism on its campus in Lexington. Black cadets and alumni describe an atmosphere of hostility and a culture of racially insensitive behavior, first reported in the Roanoke Times and then by the Washington Post. We've decided to keep this story in Episode 6 and tell you VMI's history, all of it. Though it's important for you to know, we did our interview long before all of the recent developments. This is a look back at the school's origins to the tumult of today. And we're journalists doing a history podcast. History is more relevant than ever now to understanding how we got here. For our look back at VMI's 182-year history, we reached out to Colonel Keith Gibson. I'm the executive director of the VMI Museum System, which VMI operates three different historical sites, all with three distinct missions, but related to the Institute. In a pre-COVID world, they averaged around 80,000 visitors a year. I'm just delighted to be a part of that. I graduated from the Institute with a civil engineering degree in 1977. And like most graduates, he left and took a commission. His was with the U.S. Navy. After getting out of the Navy, he anticipated going into his chosen profession, engineering. But life has a funny way of working out. I received a, a phone call from VMI saying they had a one-year appointment for an entry-level position. It was a grant uh, that they had received and wanted to know if I was interested in accepting that post for one year without any other requirements or restrictions. Carefree, I said, well, of course, that'll be fun for a year. I'll do that. And then I'll get serious about life and become an engineer. 
During that one year, I began to meet people who had committed themselves to public history, the creation, the function, the administration of museums and historic sites. And a light bulb came on. I'd never considered this as a career path, but all of a sudden I felt it was what I needed to do. It was my passion. So at that point, instead of taking an engineering job, I went to graduate school in early American history and museum studies to retool and prepare myself for this thing that I so enjoy. After grad school, he bounced around between a couple of museums, one in New Hampshire, another in New Mexico. Fortunately for me, the phone rang again several years later in the 1980s, saying that there was a new position being created at VMI, and I was encouraged to apply for it. After a rigorous process, I was grateful to receive the appointment, and I've been back at VMI now since 1986. So there's this love affair with VMI. They kept calling you back. <laughs> you know, it's such a wonderful marriage for me between my passion for public history and my loyalty and interest in the Institute. To be able to wed those two has been a wonderful opportunity. So let's go back to the beginning of this military institute in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Every alumnus would be able to recite to you that on a snowy day on the 11th of November in 1839, the first cadet sentinel took his post at the Institute and created a tradition that remains on today of which everyone who has worn the VMI uniform has been a part. That just didn't happen because on November the 10th, somebody woke up with an idea of, let's start the nation's first state-sponsored military college. Actually, there had been planning for just less than a decade moving in this direction. The origins of this idea date back to 1816, when Virginia established an arsenal of firearms along the western part of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Lexington. The whole idea was that the local militia troops needed quick and immediate access to firearms in the event of national or state crisis. The militia soldiers that were in Lexington found this a rather tedious and boring assignment. There just wasn't enough crisis. <laughs> there was nothing for them to do, in other words. So they tended to be innovative and in coming up with all sorts of activities, that uh, most of which were not particularly agreeable to the Scots-Irish Presbyterian community that Lexington was in those days. So something had to be done. One of those Scotch-Irish Presbyterians was a fellow named John Thomas Lewis Preston. John Preston is credited with conceiving this idea of why don't we have a structured experience for them while they're guarding the arms of the arsenal, we will provide them at state expense with an education. And when they finish their tour of duty, they will return to their homes in Richmond or Norfolk or Arlington or Charlottesville, more productive citizens. They would, in fact, have become citizen soldiers. Now, this notion of a citizen soldier, you're going to hear about it a lot. It was a type of training already championed by Alden Partridge. He was superintendent of the United States Military Academy at West Point at the time. 
Gibson says John Preston persisted in Virginia. The idea of a university college level school of the citizen soldier where academics would be taught under the umbrella of a military lifestyle seemed to be the solution for the Commonwealth of Virginia and for the citizens of Lexington and the arsenal where those young militiamen were residing. There were several years of debate and politicking over whether this was really a good idea for the Commonwealth. Alden Partridge himself addressed the General Assembly saying that you can lead the nation here. You can be the first to adopt this brand of education as a model. It's also important to remember that the state of Virginia was not all that involved in public education in the mid-early 1830s. In fact, there was just but one public college in Virginia, and it was Mr. Jefferson School, the University of Virginia. There were a number of private colleges around the Commonwealth of Virginia. Of course, William & Mary being the, the first and oldest of those. Today, William & Mary, we very proudly acknowledge, is actually a public college in Virginia, but that wasn't the case in the 18th and 19th century. William & Mary didn't become part of the state higher education system until the 1880s. The founding of VMI in 1839 essentially doubled the state's involvement in higher education. If you wanted to go to a public school, your choices were the University of Virginia or the Virginia Military Institute. On that founding day of the 11th of November, 1839, about 20 young men from around the Commonwealth of Virginia, that was a requirement, you have to be a Virginian to attend the Virginia Military Institute, arrived to take on this new task that was an experiment. No one really knew how it would go, whether it would be successful, whether it would fail before Thanksgiving. So this group of intrepid academic explorers arrived at the Institute. John Bowie Strange from Charlottesville became the very first cadet sentinel to walk his post as security of the Institute. And before the end of the year was over, there would be about 25 young men from around the state that had joined in that very first class that would graduate three years later in 1842. In those early years, it was a three-year program and that changed about 1845 and it became the four-year program that is still practiced today. And you said in those early days, it was a little controversial. It was an experiment. What made it controversial in the minds of people at that time? There's always been a healthy apprehension in our democracy with a standing army. So this idea of the state being engaged in this particular type of education was, was it would have to be proven that this was a healthy benefit to the Commonwealth and to the nation for that matter. It was a particularly important time in our nation's history, that mid-1830 era, because we were witnessing the passing of the last of the boys of 76. The original citizen soldiers that had fought the American Revolution. 
And there was sort of a concern or acknowledgement of where shall the next generation of citizen soldiers be trained? How will we perpetuate that spirit of 76 that led to the creation of the nation? For Virginia, the answer seemed to be with the adoption of this brand of military education whose purpose was to create citizen soldiers. And to that end, the very first superintendent, uh, that's what we call our president at VMI, we we have a whole lexicon (laughs) unique to uh, the VMI experience. But the very first superintendent of VMI, a fellow named Francis Smith, who himself was a West Point graduate and had been most recent before coming to VMI, teaching uh, math at Hampton, Sydney, one of those private, revered colleges in Virginia. When he comes to VMI, he very consciously creates imagery of this idea to support the notion of a citizen soldier. For instance, in 1842, as the very first class was getting ready to graduate, Francis Smith had to come up with a diploma. He has a diploma designed that right in the center of it has an image of George Washington, America's first citizen soldier, America's Cincinnatus, as he has been referred to, referencing back to the Roman general. By the mid-1840s, there was a need for a flag. Smith, again, went back to that image of George Washington to place on the flag, and it remains there today. When, in 1856, the state acquired the very first copy of that magnificent marble statue of George Washington made by Houdon in the rotunda of the Capitol building in Richmond, Smith lobbied to have that bronze copy placed at VMI, where it remains today. Whenever he had the opportunity to present this imagery of America's first citizen soldier before the cadets, Smith took the opportunity to do that, whether it was through their daily walk through the post and they would pass by Washington's statue, or whether on parade as they stood with their flag with Washington's image, or on that great day awaited by every cadet and prospective alumnus where you receive one of those diplomas, George Washington's literal portrait will then hang on your wall as a reminder to you of that special citizen soldier place that the Institute has in Virginia and national history. Those early graduates of VMI did not instantly go into federal service with the Navy or the Army, as you might think. That was actually rare. They were more likely to serve in the militia at some point around the state, heading up a militia company. And also in those days, the militias of every state really constituted the defense force for the nation, that they would all draw together in times of national emergency. Now, there was, of course, a very small standing army, small by design, but that standing army would be magnitude and multiplied in times of national crisis by these state militias. So the militia was very much a a part of the state and national defense. But it would not be until the American-Mexican War, 1846-48, that the VMI-trained militiamen saw active duty field service. And then, of course, the next opportunity was during the American Civil War. 
Before the Civil War, in 1851, VMI started looking for an instructor of natural and experimental philosophy, aka physics. But that person also needed to be able to teach artillery tactics. Enter Thomas Jonathan Jackson, better known as Stonewall Jackson. He had been a professor and a citizen of Lexington for 10 years prior to being called away to active service in 1861. The VMI Museum describes him as a marginal professor of physics, but an excellent instructor of artillery. Using the cadet battery and six cannons that were made especially for VMI. In 1858, VMI started accepting non-Virginians into the Cadet Corps, but by 1861, the majority of students were still from the Commonwealth, and that meant when Virginia seceded, the cadets followed. April the 17th of 1861, after long and hard deliberation, Virginia joined the Confederacy. The VMI cadets, just three days later, were ordered to march from Lexington to Richmond, where the cadets themselves would be drill instructors for the thousands of would-be soldiers coming to the defense of the Commonwealth, as they would have seen it, but had no prior training in the military. Well, the VMI Cadet Corps would actually train them in those rudimentary, what we would refer to as this quote-unquote school of the soldier, how to march, how to fire their muskets, all those sorts of basic things you learn in basic training. And the professor who would take them to Richmond to report to Confederate headquarters at Camp Lee on April 21st, 1861, you guessed it, was a young Major Thomas Jackson. Jackson himself was a graduate of West Point in 1846 and had distinguished himself in the Mexican-American War. Jackson was eventually commissioned a colonel in the Confederacy, leaving his cadets at Camp Lee so he could move on to active military service with the Southern forces. At the end of that summer of 1861, the cadets returned to their classrooms in Lexington, where they diligently tried to apply themselves to their academic studies. But many colleges around the state were simply closing for lack of faculty and students. But VMI's particular brand of education, it was considered imperative that VMI remain open throughout the duration of the conflict. the Cadet Corps was called into active service 15 times over the next four years. Most notably, on May the 15th at the Battle of Newmarket, about 80 miles to the north of Lexington, Virginia. In that battle, the cadets found themselves really by fate more than planning in the very center of the Confederate line at a critical moment of the battle. And the cadets actions there resulted in a victory. This was a unique moment in American collegiate history. There's never been a time before or since where a student body under its own command been engaged in combat in that manner. 10 cadets were killed and 47 wounded in the Battle of Newmarket. Six of the dead are buried on the VMI grounds. It is recognized 
for what it reflects in terms of the sense of commitment and courage yet today. Well, the cadets after that battle, though, don't continue on with the Confederate Army. They go back to their principal avocation, and that was students at Virginia Military Institute. They returned to Lexington. About one month, almost to the day after the battle, the Union Army makes its way to Lexington. The orders are given by the commanding general of the Union Army to shell and destroy the Institute as a legitimate military target. I'd have to say, under the circumstances, he was probably correct in doing that, considering that one month earlier the cadets had spearheaded a successful defeat of a Union Army. One of the units with the Union Army in Lexington on June the 12th, 1864, who were given the orders to shell and destroy the Institute, was a unit from Ohio. And in its ranks, two future U.S. presidents, Rutherford Hayes and William McKinley. Now remember McKinley, we've got a fun little rabbit hole coming up. Stay tuned. As for Stonewall Jackson, we told you all about his death in season three of How We Got Here, mortally wounded by friendly fire on May 2nd, 1863. Though, as we pointed out, he really died of pneumonia that was covered up by friendly fire wounds. Well, just 12 days later, the Corps of Cadets escorted the body of their former commander to VMI, where it lay in state in his old classroom with cadets standing guard. His remains then escorted to a Lexington cemetery that was later named after him until September of 2020, when Lexington City Council voted to change it to Oak Grove Cemetery because of Jackson's strong ties to the Confederacy. Because of the role that VMI alumni played during the American Civil War, even while the war was going on, the Adjutant General of Virginia petitioned the Confederate Congress that wouldn't it be appropriate that VMI be recognized as the Confederate West Point, that VMI is to the Confederacy as West Point is to the Union. That actually never went anywhere. That wasn't adopted. VMI never became the official West Point of the Confederacy, so to speak. That is a very fortunate thing for Virginia and for the nation. Because at the end of the war, in that last April of 1865, if VMI had been the quote-unquote West Point of the Confederacy, there would have been no need for a West Point of the Confederacy in 1870, in 1880, in 1890, or 2021, one might postulate. So because there was never that official recognition or association, at the end of the war, VMI was not seen as a threat or something that needed to be dismantled. commanders of military district number one after the war recognized the need for the VMI brand of education was actually stronger and greater in the post-war rebuilding of the Commonwealth than it even had been before 
because of this idea, in fact, VMI would, in the post-war era, be able to carry out this sort of West Point mandate of engineer-trained individuals in a military environment that could then go out and serve the state and nation in various capacities. With VMI surviving the Civil War, it's time to go down that rabbit hole I prepared you for. One of the young men that would be inspired to come to VMI is uh, George Catlett Marshall, who comes from Pennsylvania, follows his older brother, in fact, to VMI. His older brother, Stuart, had already graduated in 1894 as an engineer. George comes just as the Spanish-American War is ending, 1898, and really excels in the military aspects of the Institute. He does fine academically, but really finds his passion and his place in military leadership. But he doesn't receive a commission right out of VMI because no one did in those days. There was no ROTC. You had to apply for permission to take a competitive exam. So what does Marshall do? He goes to the White House just months before graduation. He takes the train to Washington, goes into the White House unannounced, and finds an audience with the president, McKinley, explains how he wanted to become an officer in the United States Army. McKinley, meanwhile, tells George Marshall that he was very familiar with Virginia Military Institute. That's because McKinley had been there before, in June of 1864. When the Union Army burned and destroyed the Institute. <laughs> well, at that point, Marshall must have felt, well, there goes my chances of being, you know, but uh, McKinley just sort of laughed and said, I have great admiration and respect for your college. And, and yes, you will have the chance to take this competitive exam. Well, of course, Marshall passed and becomes one of the most important Americans of the 20th century. George Marshall, one of the most decorated military leaders in American history, and the only military officer to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. He was named Chief of Staff under Presidents Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. Winston Churchill dubbed him the architect of victory. I just love these twists and turns our little sidebars take, don't you? Back to our story. The next big event to happen at VMI in the 20th century was racial integration. You may remember from season two, Virginia's massive resistance, as it was called. The late 1950s and mid-1960s, the Commonwealth of Virginia public education were slowly becoming integrated institutions. Integration meant different things at different campuses. In the most rigid sense of the word, they were integrated because they allowed for the first time African Americans to attend class. But at the same time, those African Americans couldn't eat in the dining hall. They weren't welcome in the dormitories. Uh, they couldn't use the gym facilities. It was specifically for the purpose of attending class. Only a partial integration, I think, we could agree. Uh, we hadn't quite achieved the real intent of the law. It's important to point out 
VMI was the last of the four-year public colleges in Virginia to racially integrate. When VMI integrates as one of the actual last colleges in Virginia to integrate, it had made a commitment to the cadet corps and to the faculty that when we do this and we will do this, it will be complete integration in the truest sense of the spirit of the law. Integration will mean equal equality in not only the classroom, but in the barracks, on the parade field, and every aspect of the institute of being a cadet will be fully experienced by every cadet. With that commitment, the first African Americans arrived in the fall. The fall of 1968. The country was in the middle of the Vietnam War. Martin Luther King had just been assassinated a few months earlier. Five black cadets would travel to Lexington and join the ranks. In a reunion a few years ago, one of the original cadets, Harry Gore Jr., told a local TV station in Roanoke there was no time to think about race when he got to the school. He said, quote, There was no white and black. We were just rats going through the same thing. Any first-year cadet knows that famous rat line, brutal training in the first six months of freshman year. Experience the rat line, like every new cadet experiences the rat line. They also experience standing guard and being in parades and all of those other things that constitute the unique experience of being a cadet at VMI. The first five African-American cadets would go on to graduate in 1972. And had brilliant careers, the kinds of careers that expects a VMI graduate to have. Those pioneers have remained loyal alumni through the subsequent decades. As we pointed out in the beginning of this segment, there are a lot of questions swirling about the role of race at VMI today. There's an investigation underway. But this is not something we were able to ask Colonel Gibson about in our interview. We talked to him long before all of this unfolded. After integration, VMI continued one long-standing policy of inequality. Only men could become cadets. It was a hard line. And interesting because women were slowly being allowed into the military for decades. In 1948, Harry Truman signed the Women's Armed Services Integration Act. By the 1970s, women were getting mandatory defensive weapons training. By 1980, the first women cadets graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. The times were changing. But VMI held firm to its tradition. No women. Prompting the U.S. Justice Department to pursue a seven-year-long lawsuit against the institution alleging discrimination. VMI admitted its first female student in 1995 during the court battles, but she would eventually drop out. In 1996, VMI's stance would be tested by the U.S. Supreme Court, the United States versus Virginia. After a lengthy court case, which ultimately will find itself argued before the Supreme Court, 
the decision was made by the courts that for PMI to remain a public school, it would have to become co-educational. It was a landmark case, a seven to one vote, with Justice Clarence Thomas recusing himself because his son was enrolled at VMI at the time. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion, stating that because VMI failed to show exceedingly persuasive justification for its sex-based admissions policy, it violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The school briefly considered going private, but in 1997, 30 female students enrolled, cementing VMI's new status as a co-educational institution. That becomes a reality at VMI in a Board of Visitors decision to have women in the Cadet Corps for the very first time in the fall of 1997, and women would graduate from the four-year experience in the class of 2001. The superintendent, the president of VMI at that time, was a gentleman named Cy Bunting. He was a VMI graduate, in fact, a Rhodes Scholar, former Army officer and uh, academic. He had been president of Hampton Sydney College prior to becoming the superintendent of VMI. When he commented on this once, he said, you know, VMI benefited from other military academies and schools that had walked across the minefield prior to us. What he meant by that was that we learned from their experiences, we saw what worked, we saw what didn't work, we tried to eradicate what didn't work, and one of the things that we did at VMI to blaze that trail for women at the Institute was VMI reached out to other military colleges, Norwich, for example, Texas A&M, colleges that had already welcomed women into their cadet corps and asked them would they be willing to come to VMI as first classmen, as seniors, to mentor the women that were arriving at the Institute. A number of young women agreed to that, to spend their last academic year at VMI uh, as models of someone who really understood what is required of being a cadet at an institution like VMI. That was a key to the success of VMI becoming co-educational in those last years of the uh, 20th century. Today, undergraduate enrollment at VMI is around 1,700, and about 14% of those cadets are women. A senior or first classman getting ready to graduate has the option of accepting or not accepting a commission in any of the branches of the service, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, even the Coast Guard. And although VMI no longer requires graduates receive a commission and go into the military, about 55 to 60 percent of those who leave the school today will serve but they still uphold and carry that lifelong VMI value of being a citizen soldier. Of that 55 to 60% of graduates who will accept a commission in the military, that doesn't mean that they are career-oriented. They, like that original 
first model that JTL Preston and Alden Partridge and Francis Smith first envisioned when this experiment began in 1839. Even yet today, the alumni of the Institute, upon graduation, if they accept the commission, they will spend some initial period, three, four, five, six years as officers in the military, and most of them will then return to civilian life, fulfilling that whole idea of the citizen soldier. November 11, 1839, the Virginia Military Institute becomes the nation's first state-supported military school. Since the first class of citizen soldiers graduated in 1842, VMI alumni have fought in every war involving the United States. Three mottos are memorized by every cadet, by wisdom and courage, always faithful to Virginia, and in peace, a great asset, but in war, a tower of strength. VMI's social battles over women and now race testing that tower of strength. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Back in Episode 5 of Season 3 of How We Got Here, we told you about the Union Army's Angel of the Battlefield. Clara Barton, the woman who would go on to establish the American branch of the Red Cross. But the rebellious South, headquartered in Richmond, had an angel of its own. The Angel of the Confederacy, Sally Louisa Tompkins. And on November 9, 1833, Sally Tompkins was born into a wealthy family in Matthews County, Virginia. Matthews County is part of Virginia's Middle Peninsula, but Tompkins is best remembered for her work in Richmond. So we went to a man with decades of experience to learn more. I'm John Kosky. I am the historian at the American Civil War Museum. He's worked around Richmond for more than 30 years. <laughs> Since before the American Civil War Museum existed, I started with the Museum of the Confederacy, uh, which is one of the partners that merged to form the American Civil War Museum. started in 1988. I have a PhD in history and taught for a while, worked for the National Park Service, worked for Williamsburg in, in various public history capacities. And as we do with many of our guests, we want to know why they devote their lives to studying events of the past. Well, history has the word story in it, of course. So there is a link between the study of history and literature and really the human condition. I mean, I like reading about people, like I like writing and studying people and all their wild variations. There's a dramatic narrative element to it. It's also a good way of understanding the world around us. To study the past is to study the present. I mean, all kinds of uh, platitudes I could give you with which you're no doubt familiar, but they're, they're all true. History is a wonderful way of, of understanding us, the human race, past, present, and future. And to understand Sally's time in Richmond, 
we go back to her past. She was raised in a wealthy slaveholding family in Matthews County. One of five children, Sally's early life was riddled with death all around her. Her father died when she was around five years old. Her mother took Sally and the children to live in Norfolk and eventually transplanted to Richmond in 1854, where her mother died when Sally was 21. All but one of her four siblings died in the following years leading up to the Civil War. She went from being a Matthews County resident to a Norfolk resident to a Richmond resident before the war. By the time of the war, she was orphaned, technically speaking, and she and her sister Maria are the only surviving immediate members of her family. Perhaps the only thing helping her handle the grief was her devout faith. She was a very strong Episcopalian, particularly became so in her adolescence. She was very well known for her faith and for her goodness, for being a very nurturing type of personality. And as Richmond became the capital of the Confederacy and the Civil War began, we start to get a better idea of who Sally Tompkins was. She comes into the public record in July of 1861, shortly after the Battle of First Manassas, or Bull Run, when the casualties from that battle came into Richmond and overwhelmed the existing hospital system. So she, using her own resources to a large extent, took over the home of Judge John Robertson at the northwest corner of 3rd and Main Streets, a large home to turn into a private hospital to take care of some of the casualties after Manassas. Tompkins' relationship with Judge Robertson began at church. And as he was taking his family to safety, away from his home in downtown Richmond, Sally wanted to do her part to help, and the Robertson Hospital was born. She obviously had the resources, as well as the will, the desire to do so. Sally was the administrator, and that is where her claim to fame was born. In September of 1861, she received an appointment, not technically a commission, but an appointment signed by the outgoing Confederate Secretary of War, L.P. Walker. He left, actually, one of the last things he did was sign this document for her, signing her as a captain of cavalry. And she became, therefore, the only woman commissioned as an officer in the Confederacy and during the Civil War entirely. A first for a Southern female, renowned for her apparent obsession with cleanliness, something you'd hope for in a hospital. The usual reason stated for, in retrospect, why she was given that commission is that it would allow this private hospital which had established a great reputation for returning men to duty and being clean and being very effective. But it would allow that hospital to stay open when other private hospitals were being closed as a matter of policy. The government was becoming more efficient in extending control over uh, hospitals and didn't need private hospitals anymore. The only problem with that theory is the order to close private hospitals didn't happen until a year after Tompkins received this appointment as an officer or captain. There's no link between the appointment of her as captain of cavalry and needing some hook by which to keep the Robertson Hospital open. So how did Sally earn this high honor? Some people in the past have accused 
might be the wrong word, but have pointed out that the reason for the Robertson Hospital staying open may have been that Sally Tompkins was a so-called pet of the Confederate government and the white elite of Richmond. The other thought sometimes offered is that having her as a commissioned cavalry officer, captain of cavalry, would give her access to the pharmacy, if you will, of the Surgeon General of the Confederacy. Even that is not entirely clear, but that might be a credible explanation. The document is in the Museum of the Confederacy collection, so the document exists. It's definitely signed by L.P. Walker. Sally signed at the bottom. Not only did she sign the bottom, but she added a note as well that helps us understand Sally Tompkins' priorities. Koski reads it for us. I accepted the above commission as captain in the CSA when it was issued, but I would not allow my name to be placed upon the payroll of the Army, Sally L. Tompkins. That speaks volumes right there. And she did put a lot of her fortune at the disposal of the hospital. I mean, that was her cause. She gave her time. She gave her her expertise. She gave her energy. She gave her, her money. She gave enslaved people working on the staff, including her own family slaves, male and female, that she put into the service of the hospital. That gives you an idea of her dedication and her commitment. She really believed in what she was doing. Like a lot of women of that era, I mean, this is something very prevalent in the literature for the last 50 or more years about women of that era who were denied as full an education and a career as they would have had in our day, the kind of career that their intelligence and their talents and their energy and their commitment would have warranted in our day. They were denied that. This hospital obviously fulfilled that for Sally Tompkins. She gave it her all. There is one problem. When people say Sally Tompkins was the only female commissioned Confederate officer, it wasn't exactly made official. Her appointment was never sent to the Confederate Congress for approval, and she was never technically commissioned. It was not approved by Congress. Many accounts say Tompkins pleaded with the Confederate president himself to keep Robertson Hospital open, and that's what led to her appointment as captain. There's some story that she went to or requested commission or some intervention by Jefferson Davis to keep the hospital open. There's no real clear trail on that either. So there's a lot of mystery, in other words, surrounding what is no doubt one of the most famous documents of its kind in Confederate lore. And I've been something of a skeptic for a while on this, but I was in charge of the museum library for a dozen or so years, and I can't deny the reality of this document, which, which we've had on display any number of times. There it is, and it's, it's legitimate. The signatures are good. Everything about it looks right. Nevertheless, the Robertson Hospital stayed open throughout the Civil War and gained a reputation as one of the best, not only in Richmond, but across the South. It did indeed rise above the rest and survived longer than the others, which is very much a part of the the legend of Sally Tompkins. In its first four years of operation from 1861 to 1865, the Robertson Hospital treated more than 1,300 patients and only 73 died. Now, 1,300 patients in four years doesn't sound like much considering hundreds of thousands of men died throughout the Civil War. But the hospital could only take in around two dozen men at a time. The survival rate in that building along East Main Street and Third Street was considered the best in both the Confederacy and the Union 
during the war. In part, its success rate owes to the fact that it wasn't a surgical hospital. There were military hospitals with which people around here are familiar. Chimborazo, where the National Park Service has a medical museum at the top of Chimborazo Hill is best known. There were a lot of hospitals and large general hospitals in Richmond that took care of the real serious cases fresh from the battlefield. And the Robertson Hospital was kind of a rehab hospital facility almost that had a, a surgeon, uh, AYP Garnet, who was also the private physician to Jefferson Davis. A hospital inside a judge's house where the surgeon happened to be the private physician to Jefferson Davis. It certainly sounds like this was the place to go if you were a Confederate soldier in need of medical care. Many believed the hospital gained its golden reputation because it was doing the easy work. It was a place where men could go to get tender, loving care, and it had a good reputation for all the right reasons because it wasn't doing the difficult work of Confederate surgery. Man wrote to her thanking her and her nursing staff for their fine care that they received there. So it had a wonderful reputation during the war and after the war. Even if the Robertson Hospital was as close to a rehab center as you could get in the 1860s, ask any nurse working in one of those facilities today, the job is not a walk in the park. And sometimes Sally Tompkins had to dish out some tough love due to her incredible level of dedication. Her friends were somewhat bemused at Sally. One of the more famous incidents and anecdotes we have is from the diarist Mary Chestnut, whose very well-known diary from Dixie has been published in many forms since uh, 1905. So this was in her diary entry on August 5th, 1861. Went to Miss Tompkins's hospital. There I was rebuked. I deserved it. She had asked Tompkins whether there were any South Carolina men at the hospital. Quote, I never ask where the sick and wounded come from, was the reply. A few days later, Chestnut described how one of the women, a comely young widow working in the hospital, inadvertently caused a stir among the patients. Tompkins told her, if you could only leave your beauty at the door and bring in your goodness and faculty. Her reputation, as well as being a very sweet woman and a good woman, was tough as nails. With the men in particular, they, they were bemused by her, as were the women. She was very short, about five feet generously. Very dainty, in other words. But people soon learned that she may be dainty in appearance, but she was not dainty in other ways. She was a very forceful personality. And I wouldn't say all business, she wasn't without humor. But piety and devotion to her work were the hallmarks of her character. Even though many refer to her as Captain Sally due to her appointment and controversial commission in the Confederate Army, John Kosky says, among surviving documents, there are just two references to her as Captain Sally. On an envelope, a large oversized envelope that came to her after the war, the other is in a over-the-top letter by an over-the-top Confederate officer named Ben Ficklin, who wrote to her as dearest of captains. Nonetheless, as the other captains of the Confederacy surrendered around April of 1865 and the Union took Richmond, the Yankees allowed the Robertson Hospital to remain open until all of its patients were discharged. One of the final vestiges of the Confederacy finally closed for good in June of 1865. 
funded mostly by Tompkins' fortune, by the time the hospital closed, her wealth wasn't what it used to be, spent on the care of men who fought on the losing side. She had friends. The Lightfoot family, for example, in Port Royal, Caroline County, Virginia, made their home available to her. So she lived for many decades after the war up in Port Royal. Sally Tompkins never married, though legend says she received hundreds of offers, many from soldiers she cared for. She spent the last years of her life in the Home for Needy Confederate Women here in Richmond. A soldier's home, if you will, for women who had lived during the war, who had some connection to the Confederacy. She was not, as that would suggest, a pauper. She lived there, she took the care there, but she apparently paid her own expenses. But Tompkins remained a celebrated Confederate figure and was honored in Richmond and where she grew up in Matthews County well into the 1900s. The Museum of the Confederacy's first identity as the Confederate Museum in the White House of the Confederacy placed a lot of stones marking important sites for Civil War and Confederate history. One of those was the location of the Robertson Hospital, which you will now find on the side of the building of the Third Street Diner at Third and Main, which is the location where the hospital once lay. And that was dedicated in 1910 by the Confederate Memorial Literary Society, the parent organization of the Confederate Museum. Uh, while Sally was living just a few blocks down the street. Sally Tompkins' final years were difficult health-wise. And John Kosky says there are some surviving photographs of her relaxing in the yard outside the home for needy Confederate women. Her kidneys began to fail, and she died at the age of 82 in 1916, spending the last 11 years of her life in Richmond. Tompkins was buried in Matthews County, where she received full military honors for an officer of the Confederacy, meaning her coffin was draped with the famous flag of America's most notable rebellion. Before we finish this segment, there's one more thing about Sally Tompkins that some Richmonders may remember. If you're hearing this for the first time, trust me, your jaw's going to drop. In Richmond lore, all of us come here has learned at one point or another over the years, there might have been on Monument Avenue, a monument to Sally Tompkins that was proposed in the, the mid 1960s. And because of a connection between a influential Richmond family and the artist Salvador Dali, Salvador Dali offered a proposal and a design for a monument to Sally Tompkins, which showed her standing on a petri dish supported by a finger, an index finger with a petri dish, and Sally Tompkins with a sword slaying the dragon of disease. If that wasn't enough for you, famed artist Salvador Dali was planning to use pink aluminum for the sculpture. Imagine it a finger rising some 20 feet out of the ground with a Petri dish as a pedestal topped with as close to an accurate representation as you could get of Sally Tompkins fighting a dragon, all of it a metallic pink. Okay, stop what you're doing, pause this episode. I'm dead serious. Google this photo. There's an actual rendering of what this monument could have looked like. And it is beyond 
anything you could imagine. I'll be waiting right here while you do this. Come back to us. The trial balloon that went up publicly got shot down pretty quickly. The fact that it didn't get anywhere makes it loom larger, if you will, in Richmond lore than it might have if it had gotten beyond that stage. It's one of these things that is rediscovered periodically, articles in the paper or in Style magazine, because it, it was such a bizarre design for a monument and the audacity of it and the idea that state old Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy, would have had a monument like that by, of all people, Salvador Dali was just, it was just too ironic for words. So you will see occasional attention to the proposed Dali monument of Sally Tompkins. Again, never taken seriously, but it certainly makes you wonder what if. Would that statue have been removed from Monument Avenue this year if it had gone up in the 1960s? Probably, considering Tompkins' Confederate ties. For those of you who think she deserves a statue for her work, you're in luck. Sally Tompkins is one of the dozen women who are set to be immortalized in bronze on the state capitol grounds in Richmond as part of the Virginia Women's Monument that we told you about back in episode two of this season. To come from such a strong, nurturing family as she did, and then find herself an orphan and without even a half-brother after the mid-1870s, I think is something that's important about Sally Tompkins, that she had come from this, this very strong family background and found herself without blood family, relatively young in life. And I can't help but think that that explains part of Sally Tompkins, that she was, I keep maybe overusing the word nurturing, but she was apparently, and from all accounts that is. And finding herself essentially alone in the world, I think made her an even more caring person. It became more important to her to forge those ties with humanity through the work that she was doing. In, in short, it gave her life meaning. November 9th, 1833. The Angel of the Confederacy is born in Virginia. She never rode onto a battlefield. She never shot at the enemy. But Sally Louisa Tompkins' work in Richmond earned her a title no other woman can claim, Officer of the Confederate Army. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. An Ode to Women, penned by famed African-American poet and activist, Maya Angelou. It's called, And Still I Rise. For 72 years, women tried to rise, just to be equal to men in a voting booth. Decades of organizing, marches, picketing the White House, hunger strikes, arrests, brutal beatings in prison. If you are a woman, any shade of color, someone struggled for your right to vote. It did take 72 years and three generations of suffragists. And I do want to point out that suffragists were both men and women. 
This was not a fight of women against men. It was a fight and a struggle of women and men who believed in the full franchise for women in opposition to men and women who were opposed to the full franchise. That's the voice of Nancy Tate. I'm the co-chair of the 2020 Women's Vote Centennial Initiative, which is focused on the commemoration of the 19th Amendment. I'm also a board member and past president of the Arlington Virginia League of Women Voters, and I'm the former executive director of the League of Women Voters of the United States. The California natives called Arlington, Virginia home for many years. Do you consider yourself a Virginian now? No, <laughs> really, sort so, no, of, it's growing on me, but uh, I'm a Californian at heart. We'll grant her that. Y'all know how much I like to talk about my home state of Maryland. Woo, that sounded Southern. <laughs> but Nancy Tate's work with the League is how we got here today. It was November 10th, 1920, when the League of Women Voters of Virginia first organized, a nonpartisan political group working to encourage all voters to get engaged. It formed out of the suffragist groups after women were finally granted the right to vote in the 19th Amendment. And a look back at that 19th Amendment is a journey worth taking. It's been introduced in Congress 40 times, 40 separate times before it finally passed. Remember, to add a constitutional amendment, you have to get it passed both houses of Congress and then ratified by three-fourths of the states. And for many, many decades, giving women a voice on Election Day was not a popular idea. Well, there's a lot of reasons, and there was a lot of active opposition. Of course, there was the entrenched social and cultural views of how people thought about the roles of men and women. Men were in the public space and women were in the private home space and they were home with the children. That started slowly changing in the late 1800s with industrialization, but it still was, it was common as, as it was around the world. But that wasn't the only thing holding back the 19th Amendment. It would be a mistake to think that the opposition was just purely cultural. Really, there was a lot of major money going into an opposition, particularly from manufacturers, from business interests that felt threatened. Lobbyists. Doesn't it always come down to lobbyists and money? <sighs> and believe it or not, the liquor industry stirred up incredible opposition. They believed, and they weren't really wrong, that a lot of women were also in the temperance movement. And they were afraid that if uh, women got the vote, that they would, you know, start to rein in the distillers, the distributors, the bar owners, the taverns. And so major money went in from the liquor industry to fight manufacturers who use child labor. Also thought that women voters might not really agree with that business model and might curtail them. So they were in opposition. A lot of the big city bosses were in opposition because, well, they weren't used to women. Who knew what all those women might do, you know, to their process that they had worked out over all those years. And as with many of these moments we look back upon in history, 
racial discrimination reared its ugly head. Particularly, of course, in the South, tremendous opposition based on determination to not enfranchise black women. Because after all, with the Jim Crow laws, the Southern governments had been succeeding at suppressing the vote of black men. So why would they want to, you know, enfranchise black women? So very strong opposition. But there was racism in other parts of the country. In the West, there was some of those same worries about the Chinese, Chinese immigrants who'd come. So there were sources of opposition. And over those years, it played out in different ways across the country. Not everyone, though, was opposed to giving women the right to cast a vote. You have to remember, the only people who could vote and make this happen were men. So women had to convince men to share power. So obviously, over time, a lot of men did vote or, or it wouldn't have happened. And I think it's fair to say that Virginia women would not have gotten the right to vote if it were not thanks to the men in 36 other states. The men who voted for the amendment in the 36 states needed to ratify are the people who produced the vote for women in Virginia. Virginia refused to ratify the 19th Amendment. It didn't even symbolically ratify it until 1952, 33 years after it was added to the U.S. Constitution. Nancy Tate says what was happening in Virginia was very much mirroring what was happening across the country. The lobbyists were winning out, and there was also sexism and racism at play. There was the whole cult of Southern womanhood. And Virginia, by the way, my understanding is it was the only colony to forbid women from voting. Virginia voted down every effort to even have a state amendment. There were active suffragists in Virginia, and that, I think, is really a testament to these women. They were taking on this patriarchy and this view of women's roles in a way that took a tremendous amount of guts. Nassau was the largest suffrage organization. There were some smaller ones. And the Equal Suffrage Leagues were, in essence, chapters of those. Equal Suffrage League of Virginia was created in 1909. And by the end, by 1920, there were at least 145 chapters around the Commonwealth. That's a lot for a state that in general was not supportive. So just a tremendous amount of effort. There was also some other suffragists who were part of the National Women's Party. There was a men's equal suffrage league. So there were men who did support the franchise for women. And there were a number of African-American women's organizations that were focusing on suffrage you know, in their communities. So even though the state was not supportive, not supportive in the least, and of course that meant a lot of the citizens weren't, it didn't mean that the suffragists didn't do their very best. Though Virginia refused to ratify, women fought hard in 36 other states, getting 35 of them to say yes, until it all came down to Tennessee. For people who are interested, I suggest they read Lane Weiss's book, The Woman's Hour, which is about the last month of the fight in Tennessee, because everybody knew this was going to be the last state. Most states had already passed it. 
Several states had voted it down and they were running out of states where it could possibly happen. There was a lot of back and forth. It's Tennessee in August. It's hot, muggy, and men are crowded into a room to vote. Not only was Tennessee the last hope for the suffragists, there was a tremendous amount of drama. The ratification came down to one vote, one man. His name was Harry Burns, the youngest member of the state legislature, actually flipped his vote. He was going to vote against the amendment because he thought that that might be what his constituents in his rural area wanted. But his mother, who was a suffragist, wrote him a letter which he received during these votes. A letter from Mama. It read. It said, I'm concerned that I haven't seen how you're going to vote. I don't keep them in doubt any longer. Put the rat in ratification for Mrs. Carrie Chapman Cat, who was the head of NASA, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, and the founder of the League of Women Voters. So he actually switched his vote on the day of the vote, and nobody was expecting that, and bedlam occurred. Harry Burns walked into the assembly room wearing a suit with a red rose. If you wore a red rose, it signaled to the room you were in opposition of the 19th Amendment. If you wore a yellow rose, you supported it. So remember, he's got a red rose on, but when he voted, he switched last minute to a yes. Yeah, he stuck with it. And when people asked him why he did it, they wanted to accuse him of bribery and all that stuff. He just said, I think a boy's best choice is always to follow the advice of his mother. You cannot write a better story than this. August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified giving women the right to vote, ending nearly 75 years of protests. Immediately, suffragists went to work. They were less than three months away from a presidential election on November 3rd, 1920. Woodrow Wilson had just finished his two terms. It was a wide open race between Warren Harding, the Republican, and James Cox, the Democrat. James Cox's vice presidential candidate was Franklin Roosevelt. And Harding's vice presidential candidate was Calvin Coolidge. Just the end of World War One. They've just finished getting over the pandemic of 1918. Women worked quickly to utilize their newfound freedom, but they still faced a lot of barriers to actually casting a vote. To register meant you had to pay a poll tax. They did get a significant increase in voters in Virginia compared to the number who had voted four years earlier. But really in Virginia, the turnout of both men and women was, was quite low because there were so many barriers to voting. There were Jim Crow laws and literacy tests. Even though they were disproportionately aimed at the African-American population, it really affected everybody. They were implemented unevenly. Lower income white men were often disenfranchised. That meant lower income white women. So the turnout in Virginia as a whole was low, but it was still a much better 
amount of turnout than it had been four years earlier because of the, the number of women who did turn out to vote. And a lot of African-American women did get registered and vote. The African-American women in their communities really went all out to, to make that happen. So who won? For those of you failing to remember your secession of presidents. The South was solidly Democratic and the women suffragists in Virginia, many of them voted a solid Democratic ticket. So in Virginia, the Democrats won, but nationally the Republicans won. So Lord Harding became president. Once the election was over, the suffragist job was not really done. The mission just shifted. The 19th Amendment does not guarantee women the right to vote. It simply guarantees you the fact that you cannot be denied the right to vote because you're a woman. Because previously you could. The fact that you were a woman made it illegal for you to vote. It changed that. It still didn't guarantee that you could vote. It gave a constitutional basis to your ability to vote. But even that, having your constitutional right to vote does not mean you will go and vote. It's not the same as as being motivated or being educated. So when the League was founded, it was with that anticipation. It wasn't just enough to tell women, okay, now you have a different legal right. What are you going to do to help them enter the political space? And in that very first convention of the Virginia League of Women Voters on November 10th of 1920, they laid out a legislative program The official mission was education for citizenship and improved legislation. In today's terms, that's voter education and outreach. One of which, of course, is trying to make voting laws in Virginia less restrictive. Back in 1920, I mean, even then we we see in the notes things in the 20s and 30s issues about absentee ballots and registration and all of those things. And so the details can change from decade to decade, given whatever the exact law is, but there's still have been burdensome restrictions in Virginia. November 10th, 1920. The suffragist work is never really done. These empowered generations of women set their sights on a new strategy forming the Virginia League of Women Voters, encouraging advocacy, political action, and equality. And in every U.S. presidential election since 1984, more women than men have turned out to vote. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. Many thanks to Digital Director Kate Albright and Executive Producer Colton Weekly. This has been a great season. A lot of stress, a lot of deadlines, but a great season. And thanks to our guest this week, John Kosky, a historian at the American Civil War Museum. Nancy Tate, former Executive Director of the League of Women Voters. And Colonel Keith Gibson, the Executive Director of the Virginia Military Institute Museum System. Next week, a bonus episode. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. 
If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere@nbc12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.